You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hi, I'm Seth Shostak. And I'm Molly Bentley. And this is Big Picture Science. And as you know, on our monthly Skeptic Check episodes, we investigate the weird and unfathomable. And that's why we're going to take you directly to Southern California with our reporter, Serge Rudashevsky, the only one brave enough to take on the following assignment. Hi, I'm here in the zombie transformation room. And uh, can you describe what you're wearing, please? I'm wedding dress for zombie brides. You're zombie brides. It looks like you are just escaped from a wedding or you got killed in a wedding? Yes, we got killed. Our grooms bit us. Your grooms right. bit you. Yeah. Now we're out for brains. Right, brains. We didn't have enough brains. We need more. It sounds as though she didn't love him for his brains. Or maybe she did love him for his brains. Zombies are running after brains in the Run for Your Life obstacle course in Temecula, California. It is a zombie-infested 5K obstacle race. We have about 10 obstacles throughout the day, and you are running towards the finish line and away from the zombies at the same time. You have to run with the flag belt. If you cross the line with one flag left, you're considered alive. If not, you're considered the undead. I see. And um, where do the zombies come in? The zombies are throughout the course. So you have to be on your toes at any moment to protect your flags. Are these real zombies? Yes. They are people. We have a production company to come and dress them up, make up them, blood and gore them, and everyone pretty much acts on the roll while they are in costume. Jessica Clemens. Amy. Melinda. So you guys are ready to run from some zombies then? Yes. Yes, we are. We're super excited. Uh, what is your strategy for avoiding zombies? We're going to follow the pack, let them go before us, and if anybody dies, we're sending them in first. Yeah. So you're going to do some sacrificing then? If we're going we to try not to. Yes. <laughs> okay, well, that's great. Thanks for talking awesome. to me. Awesome. Thank you. Thank, Thank you, you so much. Enjoy your time. Okay, bye-bye. Okay. I'm interviewing one of the runners who just completed the course. And what is your name, please? My name is Natalie. And did you survive the race? I did. So your brains are completely intact then? It is, yes. <laughs> the zombies didn't get any of it? No, I'm all muddy, but no, I'm still alive. <laughs> all right, can I uh, run a quick c- cognition test on you then? Sure. How many fingers am I holding up? Four. Four is correct. And now? Five. No, five is wrong. The thumb doesn't count. Oh, I did not <laughs> know that. <laughs> okay, well, maybe this wasn't a fair test then. So I see you guys have uh, already made the run. Yes, we I did. I see some medals. Yes. Uh-huh. Yeah. Are these the dead medals or the live medals? These are the dead ones. The dead medals. Yeah. <laughs> so your brains were... Um, we're zombies. We're pretty much dead. Infected. We're dead. <laughs> yeah. They may be dead, but we're thankful that our reporter, Serge Rudashevsky, escaped from Run for Your Lives in Temecula, California, without suffering unintended brain drain. Okay, well, people may be running from zombies in Southern California, but they're running toward them everywhere else. Zombies are infesting the movies, your television set, and even classrooms. The CDC used the idea of a zombie apocalypse to teach disaster preparedness. Zombies are everywhere. It's a zombie explosion. Yuck. But why are these the undead from whom we most love to run and also embrace, although not literally embrace? Guy Harrison has an idea as a science writer and author of 50 popular beliefs that people think are true. Guy, what are we talking about when we talk about zombies? What the heck are they? 
We're talking about something that has fascinated the world. Zombies have never been hotter, and for good reason, as we'll discuss. But first of all, let's figure out what is a zombie. The kind of zombie we're going to talk about today is not the one that comes from Haiti, not the person that took the poison and turned into some sort of entranced mummy stumbling around. We're talking about the good flesh-eating, walking dead zombies that we see in the movies. That's what we're talking about. And they sort of owe their origin to vampires, believe it or not. They've evolved from vampires. But now they're very different and they're a unique monster. And there's reasons why people are so fascinated with them. How long have we had this concept of zombies? You make it sound like they're an invention of the 20th century or something. They are. Really, they are. You can find things. Like I said, some of their origins lie with vampire legends and that stuff. But the real modern-day zombie only goes back to 1968 when George Romero came out with his classic film, Night of the Living Dead. That really started it. It has been established that persons who have recently died have been returning to life and committing acts of murder. A widespread investigation of reports from funeral homes, morgues, and hospitals has concluded that the unburied dead are coming back to life and seeking human victims. And although they were never called zombies in the movie, it kicked off this craze that is only building momentum. Now you've got top-rated TV shows, you've got books on the bestseller list. Zombies are everywhere. And I think it's a good thing, a good thing for science. Well, I have to say that I'm old enough to have seen that film in the theaters. As I recall, it was a cheapy black-and-white film shot in Pittsburgh. It apparently was the most famous film ever shot in Pittsburgh. And it, all it was was a bunch of people in some house, and there were these guys outside, these zombies, who were trying to get inside. And that was kind of the film. Yeah, but actually the film, you have, to give it, you have to give it some credit. It can't be just you know, relegated to just some B-horror flick from the 60s. One, it had a, uh, a black man as the lead, the heroic lead, which was very interesting for the times, and it wasn't a black exploitation movie or anything like that. And it was the first time audiences really saw this idea of dead people coming to life, you know, stumbling around, and just relentlessly, aggressively wanting to eat other people. And it really gets, I think, to some root fears that we have about being eaten. You know, remember, you know, for hundreds of thousands of years, 99.9% of that time, we've been avoiding predators. So it's deep within us to not want to be eaten. And then when you get into the whole cannibalism thing of being eaten by your own kind, that's even more horrifying. And then when you get into this idea of dead people not staying dead like they should, that's even freaky. So George Romero did a really cool thing. He introduced all these concepts, wrapped them up into one little neat decayed package and inflicted it on the world. Now you say they want they just want to eat us. Did, uh, are all parts of us? I mean, <laughs> I, I thought they were only interested in our brains. It's as if they had one of those diagrams of a human, like you see diagrams of cattle. And, you know, this is the flank steak and this is the rump steak. And, you know, but with us, only the brain is outlined? Or, or am no, I actually, about that? <laughs> actually, that's a misconception. If you've, I mean, we're getting kind of weird here. We're talking about something that's not real as if it's real. But George Romero never did the whole brain thing. That came later with a much lesser quality movie that introduced this whole idea about zombies want to eat your brains. And it was, you know, it's cute. It caught on. But actually, the classic zombie is just happy to chomp on anything, you, you know, anything available. Why do you think they're so popular? Because they are. They're zombie crawls. They're, I mean, people have zombie festivals, zombie parties. Zombies are in. Yeah, I've, I've written about this and thought about it a lot. Like, what is the zombie craze and why am I attracted to zombies? Why do I like a good zombie movie? Because I'm a, you know, I'm a science fan. I like the real stuff. I'm not taken in with magic and supernatural things. So what's going on? I thought about it and I think it has something to do with, you know, we can think about a ghost, or a supernatural monster, and it can scare us. These things can scare us very well. But nothing works better at really getting at you and terrifying you than something that could be real. And that's the, that's the kernel of truth down in the zombie myth, is that something about it, it could be true. Maybe some virus could evolve that actually could cause people to behave this way and stumble around and want to eat other people. It could happen. I think the thing that turns me on and so many others is that beneath the, the horror film you know, genre here, there's something that scares us because maybe it could happen. I mean, I don't expect it to happen. Relax. Don't lose any sleep. But it, it does get your attention. You're not putting bars up on your windows to protect you from the zombies. You know, one of the well-known themes of science fiction is called loss of identity. 
daddy isn't daddy anymore. And that's kind of the zombies uh, because, you know, these, these are people that maybe, you know, three months earlier were your next door neighbors and you'd invite them over for the barbecue. But now they want to have dinner on you, as it were, or with you or of you or whatever. So this, this loss of identity, somebody familiar is now this relentlessly aggressive beast. That sounds exactly. like science fiction, really. Yeah, exactly. It's, per- it's perfect. Are there some real-life zombies in nature? Yeah, absolutely. There, I mean, we know about rabies. There's a virus that can turn a dog into a very aggressive creature that wants to bite you. There are examples in nature. Um, I know of an ant that can get a parasite in it that will cause it. it. It's incredible. It will control the creature and cause it to just have this irresistible urge to climb up to the tallest stalk of grass that it can find and then start waving around so that a bird is more likely to eat it so the parasite can continue its life cycle. So is that the reason that some scientists are taking zombies more seriously these days? Yeah, I think I think it's it's like I said it's the opportunity to teach real and good science to people who otherwise might not pay attention. Even the public health officials see it as a good way to promote proper planning for real disasters. You know, you think, hey, zombie apocalypse, store up water, peanut butter, make sure you got duct tape, whatever, you know, the things you need. And also uh, uh, the CDC famously a couple of years ago, they used a zombie apocalypse as a way to communicate important information about how to plan for problems. Uh, You know, somebody who, say, a government official who's trying to get people to understand you must plan, you must prepare for earthquakes, hurricanes, these types of events. A zombie apocalypse might be a cute way to get their attention and then get them to do something very important for themselves. Well, Guy Harrison, I want to thank you so much for uh, talking to us about the undead. Thank you very much. Guy Harrison is a science writer and the author of 50 Popular Beliefs That People Think Are True. Now, most people don't think zombies are true, but studying their weird behavior does have scientific value. And this is actually the second show that we've done on zombies. We did one a couple years ago. And it was against my better judgment. Well, I'm not sure that that judgment was correct, Molly, because from our mail, it seemed to be a widely popular show. I know. I couldn't believe it because I didn't feel that it was the most scientific of subjects. However, the zombie fever has only grown since then. And there are now intriguing scientific offshoots of this particular zeitgeist, if a zeitgeist can have offshoots, which you'll hear. Although the show remains skeptic check, zombies aren't real. No, not real. But you know zombies are trending when they stagger not just through movies and pop up into Pulp Fiction, but into public radio. At the annual public radio conference, Molly and I met this guy. Jonathan Colton, singer, songwriter, and internet superstar. And he was at this conference singing not about peace, diversity, or restoring federal funds to public broadcasting, but about zombies. What's the name of the song? It's a memo. It's called Re Your Brains. Hey, Tom, it's Bob from the office down the hall. Good to see you, buddy. How have you been? Things have been okay for me, except that I'm a zombie now. I really wish you'd let us in. I think I speak for all of us when I say I understand. Why you folks might hesitate to submit to our demands But here's an FYI You're all gonna die screaming All we wanna do is eat your brains We're not unreasonable I mean no one's gonna eat your eyes All we wanna do is eat your brains We're at an impasse here, maybe we should compromise. If you open up the doors, we'll all come inside and eat your brains. Jonathan, I gotta ask, what what, what prompted you to write a song about a bunch of guys with flat personalities that go around, you know, chowing down on cerebellums? (laughs) You know, this is one of those songs that sort of sprung fully formed into my head. Not the complete song, but that line, all we want to do is eat your brains, we're not unreasonable, sort of came to me in a moment of inspiration. And I, I, I immediately knew who that guy was, and he was a guy that I have worked with in an office. 
<laughs> well, well, I mean, do you find that zombies are back to sort of, uh, you know, kind of chic these days? I mean, it, it could, could that be due to the fact that, uh, you know, today everybody's trying to have a type A personality, and so we're kind of attracted to people who have a, I don't know, type Z personality? I mean, why zombies? I think, I think there is something particularly compelling about the zombie uh, ethos. And I think it has to do, I, I don't know, you know, they, they're not ashamed. They don't have any shame. They don't have anything that they have to do that they don't want to do. They have one goal that they are focused on, and it completely satisfies them. <laughs> Does the song resonate with the public? Uh, do you find people to play that their zombie song? I do. I find that people, uh, usually when I perform that song, I ask the audience to sing along in the chorus, and I encourage them to act like zombies. And it is remarkable to me. Over and over again, people are, are very ready to scream and yell like zombies, which I says something about us as a race. I don't know what, but they're, they're ready to do it for sure. Have you, have you ever met anybody you thought, you know, this might be an actual zombie, or is this is just like, you know, people dressing up like uh, ghosts on Halloween? Well, uh, part, of the, part of the joke of the song, I think, is that the guy, the zombie and the human, they used to be co-workers, and uh, the zombie is speaking in this sort of corporate, corporate language, and... Uh, it just sort of happened as I was writing the song, but uh, I think it's an interesting parallel between the, uh, the zombie who wants to eat brains and the zombie who just wants you to put the right report on his desk at the right time. Well, I, I always wondered about zombies, whether they do anything else other than just, you know, <laughs> relentlessly look for something to eat. I, d I don't think they do, and that's part of the beauty and the purity of the zombie way. <laughs> <laughs> Jonathan Colton, thank you so much for talking with me. Well, thank you. A songwriting virus has taken over Jonathan Colton's brain. Luckily, he has the talent to make it work for him. You can find a link to more songs from Jonathan, including his latest album, at our website, bigpicturescience.org. All we want to do is eat your brains. We're not unreasonable. I mean, no one's going to eat your eyes. What do you get when you add one zombie to another zombie? Well, I know you're thinking two zombies, but actually you get a killer formula for predicting epidemics. It's Skeptic Check, Zombies Aren't Real, from Big Picture Science. Open up the doors, we'll all come inside and eat your brains. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome back to Skeptic Check. Zombies aren't real. Okay, not real, but possibly useful. Now, Seth, if I were to ask you to do the numbers, what comes to mind? Well, I don't know. I would think of uh, maybe plotting the, uh, the, the line widths of galaxies versus their distance or something like that. I don't know. Okay. Um, others might imagine tax returns, horse races, or baseball stats. However... The spread of a zombie virus, it's also a numbers game. Remember, as zombies prowl the countryside looking for brains, at least that's one popular interpretation of their dining preferences, they spread their infection. So, let's say one zombie bites the arms of two non-zombies. Those survive only to become the walking undead themselves. They stumble upon, perhaps infect, four more victims, and so on as the zombie plague grows. Until the countryside is heavily populated with zombies. A potentially exponential rise in anything is of interest to mathematicians such as Robert Smith, but it's also a phenomenon that interests him as an epidemiologist who charts the spread of disease. Robert Smith has written about influenza, malaria, and HIV. And, included in his course offerings at the University of Ottawa, is a class on zombies. Zombies are a really great subject for study because, okay, they don't exist, but they're fun. Students are interested, so enrollment goes up. Uh, we get many more people interested in zombies as a class than they are in, in regular mathematics. Uh, but also they're a really nice thing to study because they encompass so many facets of diseases. So the way they infect people from person to person, the way they alter society as we try and respond. Zombies are really terrifying, and so people get very, very interested in trying to stay alive 
at least in theory, and that prepares you for staying alive in actuality in an emergency like an earthquake or a disease or something like that. This sounds somewhat like trying to teach anatomy by saying, uh, well, the, the course will be about the anatomy of uh, dinosaurs or something, except that, of course, dinosaurs really did exist. Tell me how this works. How does a zombie infection work? What's communicable in zombieism that can lead to an infection? So zombies are not formally a disease, but they have many of the hallmarks of a disease. So if a zombie bites me, I become a zombie with some probability. That means I need to know how likely is it for me to run into a zombie in the first place? So where are the zombies in space? If I do run into a zombie, I might try and fight it off. What are my chances of success? If I don't fight it off, it's going to infect me. How likely is it if actual zombie blood gets into my neck, will I become a zombie? How long will it take once I do? All the things that might happen in a zombie invasion are all the things that might happen in various diseases. And some of those diseases do exist, some don't, not yet, but they might be the next pandemic. When the next pandemic comes, we need to figure out what to do about it really, really quickly. And so preparing for something like a zombie invasion helps us prepare for other things where we don't know what they'll look like before they happen. All right. So zombies are kind of an analog for real-life infections. But as far as the zombies themselves go, you, you start off with one or a few zombies, I assume, uh, just a small number. Yeah. And they, they bite somebody else, and that might infect them. I don't know how they transmit their zombieism. Do they bite them? Yes, they, they bite. It, it tends to be blood-to-skin contact. So the zombie's teeth, I guess, breaks the skin, and from the saliva in the zombie's mouth, it, it transmits. And this is actually quite similar to, say, mosquito biting you. Mosquitoes, when they infect you with malaria, it's in the saliva. So the saliva gets into the blood. So it's a sort of plausible virus transmission. And, you know, a person who has a virus, a blood-to-blood is the best way to do it, right? If you, you, know, you have a cut and they have a cut and the blood gets together. So if it's in the saliva, saliva to, to skin is, is a way of doing it. What's, I think, more interesting, though, is, is the form that such a spread might take, right? So if you have a zombie, a single zombie, then of course things will sort of happen more around where the zombie is and so on. But if you have multiple zombies happening, that might be because they rose from the grave or it might be because they arrived in different ways, some on planes, some on boats and so on. Right? Suddenly you've got a lot of people infected in your city. How does that affect the random person in that city? How long will it take before they have to deal with this virus? Can they hide? Can they find a cure? Can they wait it out? If they get sick, will they recover? All the things that you might have to deal with. Zombies, in a way, take care of everything. Okay, so getting back to the model, you, yes. you have a, a small core group of zombies, the initial number of zombies, all right, and they begin to uh, spread their, their affliction. You say that they tend to spread this by biting, although when you say they tend to, it sounds like there's real data on this. I don't, I don't know. Maybe, maybe, maybe somebody's in, you know, actually observed them biting other people. I, I don't, really don't know. But. Uh, well, actually, there, there is a kind of data, which is that on university campuses all over the place, they're playing the humans versus zombie games where they'll, you know, some people will be zombies and they'll chase around other people and try and infect them. And, of course, they don't actually make zombies. But you can look at the way transmission works. And trying to measure transmission of disease is really, really difficult. We're, we're not very good at that. We tend to measure other things and backtrack to try and hope that we've figured out how transmission works. But so with the humans versus zombie games, we have a way of now figuring out if I'm a zombie, how many humans will I infect? And that's a really crucial number. And so by doing that, if that number is big, well, we have a big spread, right? That number gets limited by various things. I run out of people to infect or I'm stuck in a classroom and I can't get out or whatever it is. All those factors are really important things that we like to know about all sorts of diseases. If we can measure it at least for a, a sort of pretend disease, that's at least somewhere to start. You know, it sounds like something that should take off exponentially, if you will. I mean, as if the, the zombies are really unstoppable because they're already dead. You can't really kill these guys, can you? I mean, what keeps it from just simply growing till the entire population consists of zombies? You know, zombies have things that we don't have. They don't need to sleep, to eat. They just keep coming at you. And, you know, in a one-on-one -on -one attack, I can probably beat a zombie, you know, if I have a weapon at hand. If I'm facing two zombies, I'm probably not going to do pretty well. So individually... You know, if it's just one isolated case, okay, fine. Anything else, I have no chance. But we have an advantage too, which is we have our intelligence. And so we can do things the zombies can't. We can build moats, fences. We can electrify our fences. We can hide ourselves away in bunkers. We can fortify defenses. All sorts of things that we can do that the zombies can't. They have sheer numbers, which is very, very powerful. But we have brains, and our brains are very, very strong. So what do the models show? Uh, if you run these models, what happens? Is it uh, curtains for humanity, or does it just depend on the initial parameters you put into the model? I mean, you know, what, what, what are the odds? So what we find is that, like most diseases, there's a window of opportunity very early on. So if you can fight the zombies at the beginning of the epidemic, you hit them early and hit them hard, you can turn things around. You can stop the outbreak from happening. And that's true of many diseases as well. Like, we, we could have stopped HIV in the 80s if we'd been coordinated enough. 
and we weren't because we couldn't get Congress or you know everybody, world governments and so on, to all agree to fight this thing. In fact, it was very hard to agree that we even had it, and we lost our window. But if we're fast enough, then we can do that. And so if we do things like we quarantine cities that are infected, we isolate other cities, we move people out of high-density urban areas into rural areas, it's possible we can actually stop the zombie invasion. We start picking up the zombies one by one, we bring the army in, all the things that we would try and do. We have to do them quickly, though, and that requires a lot of coordination. So it's possible, it's doable, but we all have to be pretty much singing from the same song tune. You've intimated that this mathematical modeling is applicable to real-world diseases. Now, has that happened? Have you used these techniques for... Oh, yes, yes, very often. Uh, So my my day job is actually dealing with real-world diseases all the time. And so we looked at things like if you have a potential HIV vaccine, could it make things worse? And the answer is, oh, yes, absolutely. It it very much is likely to make things worse unless you do certain things, so unless you develop the vaccine in, in the right way. And we did this back in, say, 2004, I think. And then in 2009, they came up with a preliminary vaccine that did exactly what we said it was going to do. I, I was in Africa looking at malaria, and I talked to the um, people from the, the government in Uganda there, and they were like, we need help because we don't know how often to spray for malaria. How often should we treat mosquitoes? And with global warming, things are getting hotter. That means mosquitoes are breeding faster. What do we do about that? So we used our mathematical models to develop techniques for spraying to try and treat malaria and then see what happens as things hot up, and then you have to spray more often. Mathematical modeling has a long history of dealing with real-world stuff, but particularly diseases. It dates back to the 1700s um, when they were trying to deal with smallpox. Well, Robert Smith, question mark. Thank you so much for talking with me. Yes, you're very welcome. Robert Smith, who includes a question mark as part of his surname, is a mathematician and epidemiologist at the University of Ottawa in Canada. The Walking Undead have plenty of gruesome entertainment value for films, and apparently, as we just heard, also instructive utility in the classroom. But the circumstance of being in limbo between life and death is a real one confronted by doctors, patients, and their families. And with advanced medical technology, this division has become very blurred indeed. There used to be a clear demarcation between life and death. You were one or the other. Today, determining the moment of death has become complicated, says science writer Dick Teresi in his informative and darkly comical book, The Undead. Well, the euphemism that medical science now relies on is death is a quote-unquote process which leaves them off the hook, and so they can declare death whenever it's convenient. But, uh, you know, heart attacks, when the heart stops and the lungs stop, that's been pretty traditional for a couple hundred years. The gold standard is putrefaction, and no one wants to wait that long. That might take a few days for all your cells to die, and they rip open and the stuff gushes out, and you start smelling pretty bad. But uh, in between that and what we call brain death is the heart and lungs, and we're moving away from that. We're moving away from heart and lungs to uh, brain death. So, so just feeling, you know, some shooting victim's pulse, that's, that's not the high-tech solution. Brain death is. But how do you measure someone as being brain dead? Well, it's not high-tech. That's the thing. And the motivations for brain death, which started becoming popular in 1968, is that organ transplantation was growing by leaps and bounds in the 50s and 60s. The technology there was becoming very good. We had immunosuppressive drugs that would uh, stop rejection of organs but there was a shortage of organs. There was a shortage of dead people, as it were. That's not quite true, but they had to be a certain kind of dead person. Well, tell me, what kind of dead person did they have to be? They had to be, as one doctor put it, not dead dead, but pretty dead. They had to be a little bit alive, because if your heart had stopped and you'd stopped breathing, your organs would start to, for lack of a better word, spoil, because they wouldn't be getting a supply of oxygen and nutrients from the blood flow. So if they could find a form of death that was short of cardiopulmonary death, then organ transplantation could really take off. And they found it in this form of death called brain death, which up until 1968 was never considered death per se. Okay, they're they're sort of dead, but their heart could still be beating. I mean, this suggests to me that if you're just in a coma, you might be brain dead, but, you know, you're not dead in the sense that you're irretrievably gone. Well, if it doesn't make sense to you, it's because it doesn't make sense to me either and a lot of people. Brain death was originally just another form of very bad coma. In fact, the French called it uh, coma de passe, which means beyond coma. 
but they still considered it being alive. The thought went in the late 60s was, well, this person is biologically alive, but their brain isn't working to any great extent, so that the quote-unquote person has left the building. And so they started a new standard called personhood. Does this person still have personhood? And they decided that if the brain were gone to a certain extent, that no, this was no longer a person, even though the body was still working. The reason that the heart continues to beat after the brain is dead is because it has a brain of its own. It has the pacemaker. So if you took this person off the ventilator and see if he could breathe on his own and he couldn't, you'd say, well, this person is brain dead. But then what you do is you turn the ventilator right back on again so he will continue to breathe and his uh, heart will continue to pump blood to the organs. Now, what about somebody who has a severe stroke and, and they might face, I don't know, untold years of unconscious life, you know, being hooked up to tubes, kept alive, draining away the family fortune and an endless source of anguish about what to do. What do you think should be done here? Well, that's really up to the families. That was more of a problem, say, in the 50s and 60s. You have someone, say, in persistent vegetative state, and you can't unhook them or whatever. Today, you know, we're more flexible in withdrawing life support. The problem with people in persistent vegetative state is that they can breathe on their own. And so it's kind of problematic. What do you do with them? A more significant problem with the persistent vegetative state is that 43% of them, it turns out in one study, are in fact conscious. They were simply misdiagnosed. Misdiagnosed. Now, when you say conscious, they may not be reacting to you. You can talk to them. They don't talk back, but they're aware of what you're saying? Yes, they can send messages using buzzers, drawing figures with their fingers. They can communicate via brain scans, PET scans. You know, you can ask them questions and show them a picture of their grandmother. And the part of their brain that deals with facial recognition will light up. If you show them nonsense, you won't get that light up. So they've been able to diagnose these certain people as being conscious who they thought had been unconscious for many years. Well, you write about pregnant women who, you know, in another time would be called dead, but who are kept alive for months and months so that they can give birth to their child. Who, who makes the decision to do that? Uh, next of kin. Uh, and there's good news and bad news there. The, the good news is that uh, you can deliver these babies. There have been 22 such births in the last 20 or so years from brain-dead pregnant mothers, and one of them lived, quote-unquote, lived, gestated the baby for 107 days after she was declared brain-death. And, and then what happened to her? Then they pulled the plug. They mm -hmm. took the baby home and let her go. A protoplasmic incubator. That's what she became. Ex exactly, exactly. And the, the bad news is it calls into doubt the finality of brain-death. The conceit always was, right, brain-death advocates, that it was almost as good as heart-death, that if when someone went brain-dead, if you took the ventilator off them, they would die pretty quickly. Uh, their heart would stop. Or even if you left the ventilator on, they would die within a day or so. But you have people living for 107 days, pumping along just fine after being declared brain death. It, it gives you great pause as to the validity of, of brain death. Well, Dick, as the phrase goes, everybody has to go sometime. But is that true? I mean, clearly it's true for humans, most of the critters in the local zoo, but not for bacteria. And, and bacteria rule the planet. So why do they get immortality and we don't? Well, yeah, it's something I, that no one wanted to talk about. You know, talking about natural selection, that the best traits come to the fore and, and the unadaptable traits get lost. Why did programmed death survive uh, an evolution? It seems like a, not a very good trait to have if survivability is the main goal. And uh, I talked to Lynn Margulis. And she said at one time, when all creatures were bacteria, all creatures were immortal. You could kill them. You know, you, you wash your hands in antibacterial soap and you kill bacteria. You could kill them, but they weren't programmed to die. They were basically immortal. She said what happened is when you started getting sexual reproduction and you had a sperm and an egg, say, and two sets of DNA the, from two different parents, you had too much DNA. You had double the DNA. And so you wanted to kill off some of it or you'd end up with a monster as time went by with just more and more sets of DNA being programmed into an individual. So cell death evolved. And from cell death sprang overall death for an organism. That's her theory anyway. You know that I don't know if this has actually been experimentally verified. Well, it sounds like a trade-off between sex and death. Uh, I don't remember being asked about whether I wanted to make that trade-off. 
But, but, but people say, but sex was a great invention because it allowed, you know, all this diversification. It allowed genetic experimentation. It was essential to survival. Well, that's not true, really. It's just, I think sometimes evolutionary biologists like to make a great profound statement about everything they see. And it's possible that the reason you have sex in animals, for example, is that you need sex for animals to keep procreating. It's just necessary. It's not like it's an advantage. Um, it certainly is fun. I mean, that's the only thing I'll say for it. <laughs> well, finally, Dick, what do you say to those that claim that we're on the verge of curing death, that immortality might be just around the corner for us? Or maybe that's around the coroner, but you know what I mean. I think death is a blue chip stock. I think it's going to be around for a while, and it has a great, great future. <laughs> Dick Teresi, thanks so much for talking to me while we both could. <laughs> Thank you. Dick Teresi is a science writer and author of The Undead. And here comes the subtitle, Organ Harvesting, The Ice Water Test, Beating Heart Cadavers, How Medicine is Blurring the Line Between Life and Death. Wow. If you read the entire front cover of this book, you've probably read 10% of the, of the tome there. <laughs> Coming up, why you should stay clear of bats, the mammalian kind, and other stories from scientists who track rabies. It's skeptic check, zombies aren't real, from Big Picture Science. With Wired Science, you can geek out all you want. It's a podcast for anyone obsessed with math, science, space, biology, or technology. And it provides in-depth coverage on current news and discoveries. From strange diseases that turn your tongue fuzzy to tech that'll help crops grow from space. New episodes are released nearly every day, and they're typically under 10 minutes, so you can easily make them a part of your daily routine. Listen in the morning while you're getting ready or during lunch while you check NASA's astronomy picture of the day. Check out Wired Science now wherever you get your podcasts. That's Wired Science wherever you get your podcasts. Well, zombies aren't real. However, they're really enmeshed in popular culture. They combine our fear and fascination with death, with loss of identity, and with the spread of disease. And there is one infection whose symptoms are evocative of a zombie virus. In fact, it's a malady that may have contributed to the popular image of the disease, of the insane, foaming-at-the-mouth, zombified victim. Rabies. It's an old disease. It can be traced to antiquity, although identification of the causative virus only happened in the last century. In the United States, rabies infection is rare. There are only a couple of cases a year. The infection rate of rabies worldwide is higher. About 55,000 people acquire the virus annually. And if an infection gets underway because there's no vaccine available, well, the mortality rate is near 100%. However, there is a new treatment that might help, and it has been proven successful. However, it's controversial. This development, plus the intriguing history of rabies and how it's woven into popular culture, prompted a husband and wife writing team to explore it in a book. Bill Wozick is a senior editor at Wired Magazine, and Monica Murphy is a veterinarian. They're the authors of Rabid, a cultural history of the world's most diabolical virus. Rabies is a terrible disease, and the afflicted are sick in ways that you wouldn't wish on anybody. The syndrome often begins with subtler symptoms, a twitch or prickle at the site where one was bitten, and that progresses to a general malaise and neurologic signs, signs that, that cause the patient to become deranged, fearful, angry, passionate. And all of this relates to the fact that the, the rabies virus is invading the limbic system of the brain, the seat of, of primitive emotions and, and passions. And, and punctuating that are periods of lucidity where the patient can fully contemplate how, how awful his situation is. The, the, uh, the hallmark symptom of rabies in humans is what we would call hydrophobia, um, where there's an inability to swallow combined with 
excessive salivation. Um, and those two things together create a sort of almost visceral revulsion to liquids. And so you'll, you'll often have a patient who will be desperately thirsty, but you offer them a glass of water and they, you know, raise it to their lips and their whole body begins to shake and they, they're, they're physically revulsed by it. Well, you, you say uh, excessive salivation. That, that sounds like frothing at the mouth to me. That's yeah. how we see it in, in dogs and other animal vectors. But essentially what the rabies virus has done by inciting passions and uh, causing a lot of salivation that, that can't be swallowed has turned the victim into a rabies transmitting machine, an angry, raging person or animal who wants to inflict violence and and is spilling saliva full of little virions everywhere. I assume that's the result of evolution. I mean, the rabies virus isn't there to make people sick. It's to make more rabies viruses, right? So it it has evolved to produce something that will make more rabies viruses. Exactly. Okay. Now, now you write in your book, Bill, that uh, our fear of rabies has kind of manifested itself in fictional modern monsters, in particular, you know, werewolves, but but zombies. Is that true? I mean, do we relate zombie behavior to somehow rabies? It's impossible to make the link in any, you know, truly definitive way. Um, but what I will say is that rabies exists in human writing for as long as there has been human writing, right? You find references to rabies in Sumerian texts and Akkadian texts in ancient Greek. And it has always been the sort of dark side of the dog and sort of the dark side of the animal kingdom. You know, there's a way in which rabies appears metaphorically throughout history and literature as this sort of insensate animal rage, which is really a sort of possession. I mean, and and the idea of rabies as a kind of possession is something that you see throughout literature. And then meanwhile, you look at these present-day myths that we have, you know, the vampire myth and the zombie myth, the werewolf myth, and they're all these strange sorts of saliva-borne infections. You know, they are, they're transmissible through bites. You know, does that mean that they're about rabies? I wouldn't put it like that. The way I would put it is that on some level, the two fears are linked, and they're these linked fears about the sort of the animal infecting the human, you know, the idea of these this savagery of the animal kingdom sort of visiting itself upon us. The idea of imbuing animals with, with malevolence and so forth, I, I suppose, once played a role in this, that, uh, you know, man's best friend, but in fact, man's best friend could turn you into... I guess a zombie, but that's not the way rabies ends, right? You don't kind of walk around trying to break into somebody's home the way the zombies do. How how does it end? All rabies patients, with extremely rare exceptions, die of rabies. Uh, Rabies' case fatality rate approaches 100%, and it's a terrible way to go. Ultimately, the, the virus shuts down the brain and shuts down the brain's ability to control vital functions like breathing and cardiovascular system. So the rabies patient stops breathing or or his heart stops beating and he's dead. Okay, 100% fatal. But on the other hand, in uh, places like North America, the death rate from rabies is almost 0% because we have this vaccine due to Louis Pasteur, right? So more than a 100-year-old vaccine. Uh, and yet that vaccine has to be administered uh, in time, right? I mean, wh- wh- what's the time scale? How quickly after you get bitten by an animal that might be rabid do you have before, you know, it's too late? The sooner the better for that vaccine. Essentially, you have to be vaccinated before you start demonstrating neurological symptoms of rabies, before the rabies virus has infected the brain and started to make you sick. And depending on where the infectious bite occurred, that that might be days, weeks, months, or even longer. One of the really unique things about rabies is that it doesn't travel through the bloodstream. It travels up the, the nerves. And so the amount of time that you have to vaccinate actually depends somewhat on the location of the bite wound. So if you're bitten, you know, on the neck, then you might only have a week before you might begin to manifest the neurological symptoms. But if you're bit on the foot or the hand, you tend to have weeks, maybe even months. Sometimes people will have symptoms more than a year after they're bitten. And so it's important that you know people who think they might have been bitten, even if they haven't had any symptoms in a few months, it's still worth it to go and get that vaccine. But under what circumstances? I mean, you know, because uh, you see some bats on a hike you're making. I mean, when do you subject yourself to this? 
Well, bat contact can be pretty subtle, and and that is why over the last few decades, most North American rabies cases in people have been the result of bat contact. People have a pretty good idea when a raccoon runs out of the woods and attaches itself to his shoulder that they should seek follow-up care and get some rabies vaccines. What's less clear is if you wake up with a bat in your house, what you should do about that. And public health officials will tell you that if you find a bat in a room with anyone who's been sleeping, intoxicated, who's very young or is disabled, that that person should probably be considered exposed to that bat. And if the bat is rabid or if his rabies status is unknown, that person is possibly going to need some vaccines. Okay, but you write about a case, uh, a couple of cases actually, in which people have been bitten. They weren't amenable to the usual vaccine treatment, presumably because it took too long to recognize the symptoms. But there was a whole new approach that was developed, uh, you know, on the order of eight or nine years ago. Can you tell me about that, Bill? Sure. Um, so uh, the girl in question, um, her name was Gina Giese, and she was bit by a bat while at church, didn't get any vaccine, began to develop the neurological signs of rabies, um, at which point it's too late to receive vaccine. Um, and she was you know, brought to the Children's Hospital of Wisconsin in Milwaukee as a potential case of rabies. And like most doctors, Dr. Willoughby, who, who was the person who she was transferred to had never seen a case of rabies before. He had to run a test and send it off to the CDC, which gave him a window to, to read up on rabies and, and explore the possibilities of treatment. And by the time the positive diagnosis rolled around, about 24 hours later, he realized that there was nothing really new to try, but his reading on basic science gave him an idea for something completely original. So he talked to his colleagues and the Giese parents, and together they decided to go ahead and induce a coma in Gina Giese, a medical coma that would take her very, very deep and give her body an opportunity to fight off the virus while her vital functions were under the control of hospital personnel. So the idea was to postpone the the brain destruction, if you will, that the virus would cause by simply putting her on hold, as it were, kind of a suspended animation approach, and just let her antibodies rise to the challenge of uh, beating off this virus. Exactly. Because it, it's still kind of controversial what rabies does to the brain in terms of, of how it causes damage, if it causes damage at all. Maybe it just shuts down vital functions like control of the cardiovascular system and the respiratory system and kills the patient that way. And so his thinking was uh, if his patient was under a medical coma and her vital functions were thus being controlled by, by the doctors taking care of her, he could give her that time for the immune response to kick in and fight off the virus, allowing her to survive. Well, Bill, given the fact that, you know, it's hard to imagine a disease that affects fewer Americans than this one, and yet you've written a book about it. You and Monica have written this book. What prompted you to do that? So, you know, Monica is a veterinarian, and even though she had never seen a case of rabies while she was in practice, uh, she used to come home and tell me about sort of the amazing things that, I mean, say amazing, it's, it sounds good, but I mean, just the sort of terrible, amazing nature of rabies. You know, it's one of those diseases that changes the behavior of its host in order to spread itself. And so I, you know, started to think a little bit about the sort of cultural dimensions of rabies, about the fact that we use the word rabid to describe not just this terrible disease, but also to, to describe somebody who is angry. Or you might even just use it to describe someone who's excited about something, you know, a rabid enthusiast of Justin Bieber or whatever. And so it just seemed to me that this sort of weird kind of cultural medical intersection between on the one hand, you know, this sort of terrible fatal disease that's still a kind of persistent problem that you can't really stamp out around the world. And on the other hand, this just rich and like literally ancient history of this disease that's always been with us through all of, you know, human history. There was just this sort of fascinating like collision of things to explore. Monica, what, what does rabies mean for us today? I mean, in some ways, talking about rabies sounds like it's talking about the Black Plague or something from the past. Um, you know, and there's not much research being done here in this country. Two people a year, you say, contract rabies. North American veterinarians don't see a lot of rabies. They definitely don't see it, a lot of it in pets. But rabies remains an important part of our training as veterinarians because 
our low numbers of human cases of rabies in North America come at tremendous effort. It's only through the ongoing attention to vaccination in dogs and cats and, and livestock that we're able to keep the numbers as low as they are. And in the history of veterinary medicine in the United States, protecting people from rabies has actually been one of our most important responsibilities as veterinarians. The cornerstone of our job is protecting human health by paying close attention to diseases in animals and, and how they can spread and change and, and affect people. Monica Murphy, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you. And Bill Wasik, thank you for talking with us today. Thank you. Monica Murphy is a veterinarian, and Bill Wasik is a senior editor at Wired Magazine. They are authors of Rabid, A Cultural History of the World's Most Diabolical Virus. Thanks to our larger-than-life and relentlessly productive production staff who are never undead unless they skip their morning caffeine, Gary Niederhoff and Barbara Vance. Also support from Rena Shulsky-David and Sammy David and the NASA Astrobiology Institute. Big Picture Science is produced at the SETI Institute, and thanks also to our listeners. You've been listening to Skeptic Check, Zombies Aren't Real. Once a month, we discuss critical thinking, and you can find more Skeptic Check and Big Picture Science on iTunes and through the link on our website. And while you're online, why not go to Facebook, become a fan of the program, and leave your comments there as well. If you're a podcast listener but prefer over-the-air radio because you like the occasional occurrence of dead air, check out the listing on our website of radio stations that carry the program. Hey, Tom, it's Bob from the office down the hall. Good to see you, buddy. How have you been? Things have been okay for me, except that I'm a zombie now. I really wish you'd let us in. I think I speak for all of us when I say I understand why you folks might hesitate to submit to our demand. Here's an FYI You're all gonna die screaming All we wanna do is eat your brains We're not unreasonable I mean, no one's gonna eat your eyes All we wanna do is eat your brains We're at an impasse here Maybe we should compromise Skeptic Check is brought to you thanks to a generous grant from the Trimberger Family Foundation. At the Trimberger Family Foundation, we hold that skepticism is a lamp that lights the way to truth. Trimberger.org. The world is constantly changing and transforming. Cut through some of the noise with What's New with Wired, a podcast that goes in-depth on the latest news and technology and culture. Their award-winning journalism will help you make sense of what's happening in the world. Listen to What's New with Wired wherever you get your podcasts. That's What's New with Wired wherever you get your podcasts. Tech moves fast. So keep pace with the Daily Crunch podcast from TechCrunch. With new episodes every day, this podcast will give you a quick overview on everything you need and should know about startups, new tech, regulations, and more. Listen to TechCrunch Daily Crunch now, wherever you get your podcasts. That's TechCrunch Daily Crunch, wherever you get your podcasts.